Hey, come, dairy doll, hop along, me hearties. Hobbits, ponies, all, we are fond of parties. Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, where we usually go through the Lord of the Rings films one scene at a time. But this is some other devilry. Today, we take a closer look at the written words of J.R.R. Tolkien. Hi, I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Hey Doll, Mary Doll, <laughs> where we dive into Fellowship's text for moments not adapted for the big screen. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text. In fact, that's ex exactly <laughs> all we're going to be doing, as well as interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. I do want to thank you all again for your support at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. As we met our first goal, I do want to highlight that we do have new goals in place. If we reach 100 patrons, we will automatically unlock bonus episodes for The Two Towers and Return of the King in one fell swoop. And who knows what the future holds for us, but forgetting any specific goals, the more support we get, the more extra content outside of these films we will be able to bring you. We could possibly do like a half dozen things we feel both fun and tangential to our Lord of the Rings coverage, from talking about Dante to Thrones to Arthuriana, or even movies like Braveheart and Excalibur, <laughs> which I kind of really want to do because I feel it defined a language for big cinematic medieval action, but also it would make Emily absolutely lose her shit over the depiction <laughs> of Scottish history. And there is a Lord of the Rings TV show, at least one coming, um, as well as an anime about Rohan. So supporting this podcast ensures that we can keep going while we juggle our lives in the process. So for today's discussion, it might be fun to talk about how we came to the books, or our meet-cutes with them, our first impressions, and how we dove into them properly. So I'll start here. Uh, and what I knew ahead of time about Lord of the Rings is going to seem odd because they weren't really on my radar until these films started coming out, or at least I started hearing about their production. As I've said before, most of my fantasy and medieval or high fantasy experience was limited to video games. Zelda, Final Fantasy, Secret of Mana, Chrono Trigger, Dungeons and Dragons, Gauntlet, etc. All of those were clearly influenced by Lord of the Rings, as, say, most of the classes and types of characters can pretty much line up with someone from The Fellowship. And yet, despite it being an undercurrent to all that stuff, I just didn't really know it was there or what it was. <laughs> I may have vaguely heard or seen the Bakshi films when I was really young because I'm interested in animated films and animation broadly, but even then, it's all vague. I don't really know. And honestly, I didn't even really get into Star Wars until 1996 when I was 11 or 12. And though I knew it existed, I didn't know much about Star Wars, which I think just speaks to how life and fandom and those kind of things were like before the internet. The only fandom communities I had were my best friends. And we went from Ninja Turtles to Power Rangers to Marvel and DC Comics as the main going concerns of our time. <laughs> Star Wars was not a functional franchise at this point, at least until the special editions and Shadows of the Empire, and Lord of the Rings was even lower in terms of the pop cultural zeitgeist. And the other big thing for my lack of Lord of the Rings experience, despite being in advanced or AP English and Lit classes all the way through high school, I just never read The Hobbit for class, which pretty much all my peers did. The Hobbit isn't 
like the only one of those that I missed. Uh, Moby Dick, Heart of Darkness, 1984, Of Mice and Man, Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> Pretty much a thing every American kid reads in their high school and junior high years. Just my teachers never taught them because they were more interested in A River Runs Through It or uh, Kafka's The Castle or going even deeper into Shakespeare like Coriolanus or Titus Andronicus, <laughs> uh, which is luck of the draw more than anything because I do not begrudge my literary education at all. Uh, but just as a function of that, I just literally did not know about The Lord of the Rings, which if I had covered The Hobbit in school, I'm sure would have at least come up, uh, especially because when I was in high school was when the production of The Lord of the Rings and the first trailer of Fellowship was already there. So when I first actually read it was between the theatrical releases of The Two Towers and Return of the King, or rather I read Fellowship and Two Towers after Two Towers release and then saved the rest for after Return of the King. Uh, at that point in my life, if I started like with the movies with something, I usually like to finish with the movies. So mm -hmm. I did the same thing with Harry Potter. I started with the first two movies. So I'm like, I'm going to see all these movies before I read all the books. And with the two towers specifically, I will add that I did get some guidance from some message board friends at the moment <laughs> who told me, hey, you might want to stop reading uh, here because this is actually being adapted as part of Return of the King because the two towers film was already out. And I say the next bit here, like with a hope that I won't be excommunicated from this pod. <laughs> but when I first read it, my first thought was, dang, this is nothing like the movies. Um, I, I was uh, expecting something more fast and thrilling and actiony. And it absolutely was not that. Uh, it took a lot of time in the Shire. I might have even skipped the Concerning Hobbits prologue because it wasn't a narrative proper. There was just such a long time between Frodo leaving ba Bag End and arriving at Bree, which is like a 10-minute action set piece in the films, <laughs> but there's like a whole shitload of stuff that we're going to discuss today that isn't even adapted. I still, you know, it liked it. I didn't like hate it or anything, um, and it did deepen my understanding, and, you know, I was thrown off by a couple things, like I was expecting Arwen to show up to save Frodo, not Glorfindel, <laughs> uh, so... You know, it was it was kind of a mixed experience, but from there, I really did enjoy the back half of Fellowship of the Ring, which kind of hewed closer to the films and was generally more of a straight-up adventure. And I was super into the Two Towers when I got there, till the Treebeard chapter, which really kind of killed my <laughs> momentum with reading it. Um, because at this point, I was also kind of like, I want to read to see what happens next. I wasn't as invested in the whole mythology of Middle-earth or what Tolkien was really doing with his construction of cultures and languages. It was more like, what happens next to my beloved characters? And that just feel like a big, you know, obstacle in the path. I did, you know, eventually plow through, but I think at this point I'll kind of save some of this stuff for when we talk about the Two Towers book scenes, which I assume we will. <laughs> um, no, this is interesting because I think it kind of broadly mirrors my, well, not really. It doesn't really mirror my history with it because I think yours is slightly more, like, uh, interesting. Um, whereas, you know, I kind of started... Oh no, you know what? I'm actually totally lying. And I've just, I've just remembered this. And um, so the first Tolkien book I tried to read was actually The Hobbit. Um, and it was because I went and saw the first Hobbit movie in the cinema. And then I went and saw the second one in the cinema as well and walked out thinking it was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life and was like, 
I, I like I stopped going to see movies at the movie theater for um, years after I saw that second Hobbit movie. But I remember being like, okay, but there's no way that this thing is like the cultural juggernaut that it is. Um, if like the source text was that shit. And so I went and, uh, went to, no, it wasn't Borders, Books a Million and bought myself a copy, a little shitty paperback copy of the Hobbit and, you know, went home to read it and was horrified. I was like, this is so fucking boring. Um, and there was so many songs in it right at the start of the Hobbit. I, I genuinely, I think I've read the Hobbit in full, like maybe twice in my life. Um, and even to this day, I am like, what dog shit book. I, I respect it, I guess, but I also hate it. Um, anyway, so I, I, I did not make it through uh, The Hobbit at all uh, on my first read when I was in high school. Um, I just thought it was a, a nightmare book and, and put it down and put it away. Um, but I also started to like hear more about The Lord of the Rings like as a sort of, I don't know, in my head, The Lord of the Rings books were kind of on par with, say, Ulysses or War and Peace. Um, as those kind of massive, immensely dense books that um, nobody really reads for like the joy of reading them. Um, and people who do read them for the joy of reading them are lying about it. Um, and, and there's not really like much there that uh, isn't like a purpose built to annoy <laughs> high school English lit students. Um, of course, the, the big irony of this being that, you know, in the years since uh, I was 16, I have, of course, read both Lord of the Rings and War and Peace and count both of them among like my favorite books and talk about them endlessly. But like back when I was an unmitigated 16 year old, I was like, these books are ridiculous. Um, and I'm never, ever, ever going to read them. And so I, I did kind of the same thing as you, but in a much less interesting and, and sort of 20 year delayed fashion, um, where when I watched the films, I got really, no, I watched the films a couple times and was like, these are really good films. And like, they're making me think more about film in a way that I haven't really thought before, but like, that was kind of it. Um, and then during the pandemic, I watched them again. And I know I've told the story in the podcast before, but it, during the pandemic, I watched them again. And I remember going online, uh, which is, you know, sort of my first big mistake. Um, I went on Reddit um, and was reading people's takes on The Two Towers because uh, I was kind of interested in all the hype around it. I was like, OK, like, I also think it's a really good movie. I also think Helm's Deep is a masterpiece. But like this is a lot of hype and like universal hype for something that feels to me like it should have been more controversial. Um, and I went online and like saw people bitching relentlessly about how they handled Faramir and the movies. Um, and I was quite sympathetic to movie Faramir at the time. I was like, Oh yeah, one of them did a good job. Fair enough. We all have knockdown drag out fights with our parents. It's totally understandable. Um, and I think I tweeted something about it being like, oh, well, if you're bitching about movie Faramir, you're a fucking moron. Uh, and someone on Twitter was like, have you read the books? And I had to kind of like climb off my uh, the the petard from which I from once I hoisted myself uh, to be like, oh, well, you, no, no, I haven't read the books. Um, and they were like, go read the books and then and then tell me what you think of movie Faramir. And I was like, oh, well, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm still going to have the same opinions at the end of this because I'm 20 years old and invincible and uh, I've done all the intellectual growing I ever need to do. Um, and so I went and read uh, the books and I got through fellowship and was like, OK, fellowship is nice. Like, I like the descriptive writing. It's very like poetic. That's cool. That's nice. Um it didn't really super connect with it like any more than like any any kind of decent book you pick up. And then I got into the two towers and went feral. Um, and 
at the time, I remember kind of talking about movie Aon as like, oh, isn't this nice? They haven't really girl bossed her. Um, and that's that's kind of refreshing. Um, and then I got to to uh, the King of the Golden Hall, which is the the chapter in which we we meet Aon for the first time. And I just remember having like my brain actually snap, like when you have like a really good back crack, because it was like I didn't think you could write like that. Um, and I didn't think that you could have like that much kind of personality and like thought and meaning in a character, um, or, or in sort of any story, um, in, in, in so efficiently. Um, and that to me was kind of interesting because like, um, I, I don't know, like I've never really been much of a reader. Like, you know, you know, I, I loved Les Mis growing up and that was kind of my thing. And that was kind of the only book I read. And for a long time, I didn't really read. Um, and, and I know it's a horrible thing, but like, I mostly did my like school uni readings or whatever. And I wasn't really thinking about like style or form or function or aesthetics of, of writing or, or like what makes characters good or interesting or like what the sort of like cultural context behind these, you know, what behind writing is. And then I got to Eowyn um, and I was just like, she is unlike any woman character I've ever read before. Like, you know, I quite like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, I think is a really interesting character. And, you know, the, the unsex me here, you spirits speeches, I think one of the, those literary speeches that really like resonates with me, but I just had never seen anything like it before. And, and I just remember having this like moment where I was lying on the ground, uh, kind of annoyed at the world. Cause it was lockdown number two, uh, reading two towers on my Kindle and just being like, I know that I'm never going to come back from this. Um, like, I think I had a moment where I kind of acknowledged myself that I was like jumping headfirst down into a, an abyss of insanity. Um, and, and, and that was it. And then I got to return to the King as well and return to the King. Like I'm, I'm always kind of, I'm compelled by a lot of the sort of side stories, uh, in, in, uh, Lord of the Rings generally, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them I'm compelled by. Oh my God. I, sorry. I just realized there that I've just called Frodo and Sam a side story. No, no. I'm compelled by the main story. Uh, I'm also compelled by the side stories, but getting to Minas Tirith for the first time and reading the descriptions of Minas Tirith, which we'll talk about at some point, uh, was, was kind of the moment where I was like, oh my God, like, oh, oh my God. Like I, this is it. I, I'm done for. Um, and, and then I kind of like was not able to put the book down ever again. And, and then there was like the, I read on Valentine's day, I think it was, uh, last year, uh, the, 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 the scene in the steward and the King, uh, with Faramir and Eowyn. And, and I was like, yep, this is it game over. Um, but yeah, but, but it was kind of interesting to me because like they'd been these like massive and sort of highly intimidating books that I was like, oh, I'm too stupid to ever read these. And then I kind of got into them and, and, you know, fellowship took me ages to kind of get over that, like shaking off the kind of the, the fear and the panic around like these books are smarter than you. And then by the time I got to like two towers and there are all these jokes about like Sauron stealing only black horses cause he's a goth. I'm like, I, I don't know, like Mary and Pippin just kind of fucking around the whole time. I was like, this, this is nothing like the reputation. Um, this is not half as scary as it is. And like, realistically, like everybody could read these and be, and be totally fine with them. Um, but yeah, no, it's just kind of interesting thinking back on that now. Cause that is like, yeah, a, an interesting descent into madness, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think I'm going to out myself as one of your, uh, dirty, filthy liars here, but uh, those books you mentioned, like things like uh, Moby Dick. I didn't read War and Peace, but I did read uh, The Idiot, uh, which is kind of nice. like my favorite big Russian uh, 
lit favorite. But like reading those as an adult outside of the context of schoolwork, like was super liberating. Mm. Um, I can't imagine what it'd be like in class to like sit there and read chapters about spermaceti that they're harvesting from (laughs) these whales uh, or having to like, you know, write something about that. But like reading it just completely unburdened just was, it's, I think Moby Dick, (laughs) it is one of my favorite books. It's like such a boring, like, you know, a person who doesn't read would say their favorite book is Moby Dick because they've heard of the book kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like reading that or reading some of the Russian authors, um, just or even like Of Mice and Men and Lord of the Flies, like simpler stuff, but just outside the context of schoolwork, just like really allowed me to appreciate them. And also I was 24 years old with a much broader understanding of books, of art broadly, of narrative. Um, and it allowed me to see, oh yeah, well, obviously this part of Moby Dick heavily is, you know, in this movie that I love that stars Nicolas Cage or something. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's just kind of funny how, how that happens. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that's very fascinating. I think one of the fun parts of this podcast is how different but similar our approaches to this work has been or this world <laughs> um, coming at it from two different times and in two different uh, ways. Um, so I, I kind of, I'm kind of wondering, um, so obviously, like you were into Star Wars, but were you, were you ever particularly into like the EU before it was the sort of Disney EU? Yes, 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 I was. Um, the EU prior to the prequels, though, um, just because <laughs> I was kind of aging out of reading Star Wars books because I was about 14 or 15 when The Phantom Menace was coming out. But like all the stuff before that, um, like the original Thrawn trilogy by Timothy Zahn, um, there was a series called uh, The Jedi Search, uh, which yeah. was set seven years after Return of the Jedi, where Luke was um, starting the foundations of the new Jedi Order. And that was something I latched onto. I think that was the first, like, outside of the movies, like the first book I read about Star Wars. Um, the Courtship of Princess Leia, which, you know, a lot of people <laughs> hate at this point. But, like, we we only had like maybe a dozen books when I came across Jedi search in the first place. And I read those and there would be some others. There was like a rogue squadron series. Yeah. Hell um, yes, there was, <laughs> th- there was uh marriage, marriage aid came up and there was like the phantom planet or the twilight planet. I think phantom planet did the theme song for the OC. So um, I'm clearly uh, crossing wires here, but so yeah, I was like fully invested into that, but I was also like so young where like I didn't really have any, judgment on the quality of it is just like oh these are the continued adventures of luke skywalker and han solo and lando and leia yeah Uh, so i was just like yeah this is great i i want more star wars stuff um i read shadows of the empire like five times oh yeah oh yeah uh, because i fucking love dash render yeah um and just you know it was so firmly situated in stuff that i know like in between empire and return of the jedi but like still all made sense and felt properly star wars to me yeah um like I just thought it bang. So I was super into the extended universe. I probably would have also been with the prequels. Again, it was just at a time where I was aging out of reading books for fun, more or less. Cause yeah. me and my uh, friends, you know, a wanted to like go party or, you know, do stuff with <laughs> girls uh, or like, you know, we were being cinema pilled at this point. This is when my Stanley Kubrick and Martin Scorsese love was starting to be born. So it's just like, we're going to go rent Goodfellas instead of, you know, we're all going to go home and read the latest, you know, <laughs> uh, Star Wars extended universe book. Yeah, no, I feel that. And um, it's funny because like I, I was so uh, I was a kid. Uh, well, obviously, uh, I was a kid during during uh, the kind of well, 
after the kind of heyday of the EU, uh, I feel like most of the kind of books that I really like from the EU were, were were definitely out probably by the time I was born, to be honest. I think most of the the Rogue Squadron, which were were obviously my my favorite part of the EU. Um, but the but the Star Wars EU, so the reason I ask is because the Star Wars EU for me kind of fulfilled this like maybe not con- consciously except for when it was brought up, but I was like, why would I ever read something like Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and all the sort of shit that like comes with the Tolkien legendarium when I have Star Wars and Star Wars is written in like language that, you know, at the time I was like, oh, language I, I could understand. Um, and, you know, it has video games that are really cool and stuff like that. And, and, and I think I kind of like for a long time, I always had that kind of feeling that like the, the Star Wars EU was what uh, Tolkien's legendarium was if you like weren't pretentious and and I guess I'm kind of wondering like did you kind of did you have like any thoughts on that sort of when you were first getting into the Lord of well not getting into but like reading the Lord of the Rings books or were they kind of separate to you I think they were kind of I mean I am still someone here who you know has a Lord of the Rings podcast and has not read anything (laughs) outside of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit Um, (laughs) even though all that stuff has been around since long before I was born or I believe all of it yeah Uh, but yeah I I don't know it just I never viewed them as competing I mean there's definitely stuff not like related to Lord of the Rings or Star Wars where it's just like there's too much there I don't think I'm ready to give myself to it Um, but for me it's always been like it just kind of shifts. Like I had Star Wars when I was young um, and then because of the special editions and prequels, but then that was replaced by Lord of the Rings and I got really Lord of the Rings pilled for five, six years. Um, And then that kind of like moved out of the pop culture zeitgeist. So I just kind of moved on to Harry Potter a little bit. Mm. And my Harry Potter interest was definitely at a level below like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. I thought I was like, oh, these are good movies. I enjoy watching them. Uh, And then obviously uh, shortly thereafter, um, A Song of Ice and Fire, like Game of Thrones came out, but I read the books right before the show. Um, And then I obviously, like, it's hard for me to take on any other fandom just because Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire still takes up so much of my time in my life. Yeah. Um, That, like, when I was thinking of what other podcasts would I want to do, it had to be something like I was already into, like, The Lord of the Rings. Um, Like... I'm like, I'm also so deep into like Marvel comics. I'm just like, not, never going to bother with DC at that level. Yeah. Um, like I, I like Batman. I like Wonder Woman. Like they're all great. They're not necessarily better or worse than the Marvel stuff, but it's just like, I've read so much Marvel stuff in my lifetime that I, I just don't want to bother with having another set of that kind of knowledge yeah. when I should be like trying to make sure <laughs> I like get a job soon. Stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I think for me, like the Marvel DC thing is kind of like, what your like what your Star Wars Lord of the Rings thing was. Yeah. It's yeah. just like I have this whole giant 70 year canon of comics. I can't just add a whole other 70 year of canon of <laughs> comics uh into that. Um I can still be a casual fan. It's very easy to watch the Batman movies and read, you know, like the big events, you know, as they come out every couple of years, but I just can't give myself to another thing like that. Uh so yeah, I think I, I find that kind of conflict between the two like big two comic companies and i'm thinking more of the comics not like the cinematic universes yeah no so that's interesting so i when i was kind of thinking about 
like that problem, um, or I guess kind of trying to rationalize that problem for me of like why I was so ready to uh, like get basically be balls deep in like 113 EU novels, uh, and, and kind of have like these, like, uh, this encyclopedic knowledge of, of like Star Wars, but like for some reason spent all this time being like, Oh, all the Tolkien stuff is kind of beyond me. Um, I, I like, I was kind of trying to make it make sense in terms of like the depth and breadth of what the legendarium is. Um, mm-hmm. and so I was kind of doing like, uh, in the most kind of rudimentary lazy way possible. I was kind of trying to like figure out why it is that even now, even after having gotten into the legendarium, why like it feels so different and why the books kind of have a totally like the relationship between the books and the movies to me have like a totally different relationship to like the star Wars books and the star Wars movies, you know, besides the, the, the sort of mm-hmm. publication order being different. Um, and, and one of the things I was kind of coming to is that like, I think that like in a lot of ways, everything is trying or not whether consciously or not is trying to be the legendarium. Um, and, and the thing about it is that nothing else can be the legendarium because I think like the, 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 like at the moment at which Tolkien created the, this sort of universe, uh, this, this world, um, he was doing so under like these incredibly specific kind of unrepeatable conditions. Um, and so you get like, right. So like Tolkien himself gets to write all of this shit in the way that he does, because he's like a well-paid Oxford professor. Um, and back in the time when the UK actually paid its professors, uh, anything and, and, and right now they just don't. Um, but you know, he could, he could fuck around in his classes and annoy Diana Wynne Jones by not teaching properly because he wanted to write the Lord of the Rings because he was, he was well-paid because there was like a really strong welfare state that that kind of like fit out or filled out the sort of bottom level for for Britain and and you could always have that level of security which meant you could do things like indulge in the arts um and and then there was sort of this like also kind of confluence of the fact that like you know he had this total control over it for so long um in in a way that I don't really think copyright law really allows for anymore um except well, yeah um and 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 then there's also sort of like uh the fact that it's all pre-movie. Um, and I don't mean like specific kind of Lord of the Rings movies, but I mean like, um, in 1945, um, when, or 1949 rather, when, when Tolkien finishes the manuscript for the Lord of the Rings, um, not the, the norm is not to have a TV in your house. Um, and I'm not about to do like some whole like couch potato shit, like, Oh man, like, isn't it sad that people watch TV now? Like, like, it's not that at all, but it's like, you know, people's primary like root of entertainment right now is, is the television. Um, whereas in 1949, it's the book. Um, and so even though there are like worries about like, you know, the, the publishers being like, we can't publish the Lord of the Rings as a single book because there's literally not enough paper in the United Kingdom. And also we've just had a war. So everybody's too poor to like, buy a massive book they need to split it into three even if you've got kind of things like that people are still going to go out and buy a book and like the monoculture you know to to use kind of trendy term right now is going to focus on a book far more readily than it would now um and there's kind of that like readiness or willingness to engage with literature in a way, not to say that there isn't now, but like what literature, the function that literature sort of had in society pre, I would say like 1985, um, is, uh, is, is sort of now taken up by movies 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and like, you know, to, to talk about sort of high art, you, for most people, I would say most reasonable people, you would necessarily include film now. Um, and that is like very much like saying that you've watched Goodfellas or saying that like you have the sort of entire like Scorsese filmography in your house on DVD is, is sort of the same sort of signifier as, uh, previously saying you've got um every sort of Jane Austen uh uh edition um and so you get like this kind of willingness to engage with like this massive uh universe or, or world kind of but also to to kind of um allow it to just exist as it is like I don't know if that makes sense sorry I'm not sure if I've gone like totally fucking crazy here but I feel like you know Star Wars tries to have its EU um, and even though it's quite good like it will never have the same impact and become basically like a new mythology in the way that like Tolkien's Legendarium is because it was first and foremost a movie Um, the Marvel comics not the Marvel Cinematic Universe, will get pretty close, but because there is that like very specific kind of anti-graphic novel bias um, and, and like thinking that it's all like exclusively for kids, like it will never have that like universal sort of mythology, cultural sort of uh, power that Tolkien's Legendarium or intellectual power, I should say rather, because people are going to be like, oh, well, comics are for kids. Um, and so you get like all of these things that hit at once in uh, when the legendarium is published. And I think that like, to me has been such like a really interesting kind of point of comparison because I kind of tended to turn my nose up at the idea that like Tolkien created a new mythology, but I wouldn't like, I wouldn't know how to label it or define it if not to use that language, if that makes sense. No, I think all of that I completely follow. Um, and yeah, I agree with you about like how the comics fall short because, um, I don't know how it is over across the pond, but there's just like drawings and animation are just like relegated to being kid stuff here. Yeah. Um, uh, except if it's anime, because I grew up at a time where if you watched anime, those were just perverted cartoons. Like, <laughs> yeah. so you were just some kind of sicko, um, which is not a case for like your generation or even people like five to six years younger than me who had Adult Swim and Aeon Flux and like anime on American TV. And it's like, oh yeah, this is just normal or this is just cartoon, you know. This is just another form of entertainment or another mode of it. So, um, but yeah, I think because it has some of that legitimacy as like books being a valid form of art, whereas something like cartoons or comics were, you know, always kind of contested in that sense. Um, And that the most important parts of that story are all books. Um, I know the movies now have kind of changed that a little, but, Mm. you know, with Star Wars, it's always these are the three movies and these books are just for us weirdos who want more (laughs) um, or who have the time to dig in or are just kids. Um, So we want to see more what happens to our favorite action figures. Um, But it's very easy to separate the Star Wars movies from everything around it, whereas even with the Lord of the Rings films now and how it exists in this like forever world of IP, um, I still feel like the Lord of the Rings as a book exists as part of the larger legendarium, and you can't really extricate the two, even yeah. though I tend to because I am a movie person. <laughs> um, but like I like I get it. like I get that it exists in there. It's just. I, I haven't personally gone down that road a, as far as like others and like you have and stuff. Yeah. I actually, you know what? I think that that comparison or like that, that kind of point about being like being able to separate the the books and, and the films um, in, in sort of like Star Wars case is actually a really like interesting one. Um, because if you think about like Greek mythology, right. And like the Greek tragedies, there are certain um, writers and authors who um 
we're like we're we're functionally riffing on a, a mythology that was kind of not democratized, but like popularized. It was universal. Nobody nobody held the fucking copyright over uh, like uh, you know Achilles, Agamemnon. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know what I mean? And so like even though now in twenty what year are we? We're in twenty twenty two. Even now in twenty twenty two, like you know we may think of um, certain Greek playwrights as being the voice, like the singular interpretation of these myths. In reality, like the the, the actual mythology is so much larger than that. Um, and I think that that to me is kind of the Lord of the Rings thing right now, which is that like you can separate them. You can separate them. But you also can't really just because the like uh, kind of closeness they have now, um, and and that sort of like inextricability. Like you can't really talk about Lord of the Rings in, in a in a popular or like accessible sense without talking about the films, the Peter Jackson films, in the same way that you can't talk about. I'm literally gonna Sophocles. That's who the motherfucker is. You know, <laughs> like you can't talk about Greek tragedy without talking about Sophocles. But Sophocles isn't the only one writing about Greek tragedy, and that's kind of the same thing. Like that's kind of how that ends up playing. No, I think that's exactly right. So I want to do like a clunky transition here from the kind of world of mythology and and the sort of changing ways that we handle stories into something that's going to be like quite a common theme for the, the rest of this episode, um, which is uh, the, the questions of music, like orality and folklore. Um, and I do kind of bring up Greek mythology and its sort of similarities to Tolkien's Legendarium because I have an agenda. Um, and that agenda is talking about how uh, how stories are told. Um, and that's obviously something that we do a lot on these podcasts. But um, just to do a, a brief history, because, you know, obviously I have a degree that I need to justify. Um, the novel, as we kind of understand it now, the, the, the modern novel, um, doesn't really develop until the sort of latter half of the 18th century. Um, so you get lots of uh, these the sort of early pre-regency entries into the, the creation of the novel and sort of uh, professional um, authorship. You've got like uh, Samuel Richards' Pamela, you've got Candide uh, by Vol uh, Voltaire, you've got um, uh, you've got like Walter Scott, uh, Ivanhoe, uh, um, that you've got like the Midlothian, the Heart of Midlothian novels. These are kind of the first uh, novels that we that we ever have that are recognizably stories in the way that that we think of stories now. And these are all sort of latter half of the 18th century. Before the sort of genesis and proliferation of both the printing press and uh, sort of semi enlightenment ideals, um, storytelling. Um, even published, written down and published in books, looked very different. Um, and interestingly, I think it actually looked more similar to the kind of storytelling that we get in the Lord of the Rings books uh, than, than uh, modern novel-esque uh, storytelling does. Um, and some of those sort of important elements uh, that, that kind of differentiate the, the novel, the modern novel from the sort of classical storytelling um, are... Importantly, the, the the sort of wider mythology, which we obviously talk about lots on this podcast, um, but then there's also the sort of emphasis on music and orality, um, and this is to say that books may have been written down and recorded on on paper and and published, um, and even to an extent, sort of towards the 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 earlier half of modernity, uh, you know, widely proliferated. 
um, there is still an emphasis and an expectation that stories are going to be told aloud. They're going to be read aloud if they're being read, or they're going to be sort of preserved in people's minds and, and, and spoken aloud. And that is how stories are going to be uh, 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 proliferated, you know, sort of translated to, to the masses. Um, and, and a kind of crucial element to keeping stories interesting as they're being told orally is to include song. Um, and it's because it's that much easier to do. Um, you can include music very, very, very easily when you, as the storyteller, all you have to do is start singing. You don't need instruments to make music. You just need your voice. And if you're already telling a story, speaking, it's very easy to transition to singing. So lots of pre-modern novels and, and early modern novels, um, include songs in the same way that The Lord of the Rings includes songs. Um, and, you know, that was a massive turnoff for me when I was reading The Hobbit for the first time because it didn't look modern and it looked sort of impenetrable. Um, but as we go through the the rest of this episode, um, one of the things we're going to sort of be hitting on and, and talking about quite a lot is song and the presence of song in in the books. Um, and, and in some extents, the lack of song in the movies. Um, so I just wanted to like hit that up here and, and, and get that, set the stage for that one, uh, metaphorically speaking, because it is just going to be this massive theme in this entire conversation. No, that's great. I, I, I need to think about this some more because I also want to think about this in relation to A Song of Ice and Fire, um, because it is, you know, in many ways similar to Lord of the Rings, but George Martin is also clearly a TV writer. Um, and I think that very much comes through where he is, using his experience in a new form of media to tell a story. Cause like all the chapters in a song of ice and fire basically ends on cliffhangers, like basically <laughs> like the end of an episode of 24 that'll make you want to tune in next time. I, I don't think it's like cheap in a way that TV shows generally do it now, but it's definitely written pace like a TV serial, which is kind of interesting to think about how a new mode would affect the form of novels and literature, traditional storytelling. But I don't have thoughts on that yet, but thank you for unlocking that road for me. So in our first couple episodes, we discussed how much of the first book of Fellowship lingers in or around the Shire, something the films broadly excise up to up the urgency of the films. We've joked repeatedly that there were long delays between Bilbo's party and Frodo setting out, upwards of 17 years that feels like just a few weeks as depicted in the films. We also dipped into the more detailed logistics of the Shire Exodus, Farmer Maggot's more helpful role, the brilliance of Fatty Bulger, and of course, Merry and Pippin knowing about the quest the whole time. So a significant source of the film's economy was in getting us from Bilbo's party to Bree with haste. But it wasn't just simplifying the details. In terms of book content that was wholesale just lifted out of the story, most of it seems to be the lands between the Shire and Bree. We have three distinct locations, the Old Forest, the House of Tom Bombadil, and the Barrow Downs, where significant time and action take place. That said, all three of those locations tie into Tom Bombadil specifically, who is a merry fellow, but if you aren't adapting him at all, the rest becomes just a tad bit more excisable um, than other content. So starting with the Old Forest chapter... Uh, some background on the Old Forest is that it is east of the Shire, uh, specifically east of Buckland, and uh, there's a giant hedge that separates Buckland and the Shire from the Old Forest that's known as the High Hay, and uh, Mary is the one who will lead our hobbits through them, being the Brandybuck and more familiar with the area. 
Uh, film folks will recall Mary telling us a bit about the old forest when him and Pippin are captives at the feet of Fangorn, which when you hear this should be our previous episode. Uh, Mary susses out that the trees are talking to each other and then speaks to tales of the old forest. The trees were alive, could talk to each other, even move which was a fairly smart adaptation choice, I think. Um, They're able to reference a location they couldn't work into the films and use it to set up Fangorn uh, for that film. And I also assume they wanted Treebeard's presence to be a surprise, so they kind of cut out any anthropomorphic tree activity prior to Treebeard's arrival on the scene. And, of course, it was doubly smart to put those lines in the mouth of Mary Adock, who, like I said, is the Brandy Buck and would know about these things more than the others. The Fangorn connection is not just for us average moviegoers. They were all part of the same forest long ago, spanning the breadth of Eriador back in the days long past, and that these were the same trees that elves decided to wake up once upon a time. The forest would be slowly decimated over time with the arrival of men and the ongoing hostilities between Sauron and the elves. So this is kind of interesting to me, the the uh, emphasis on forests in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings books. And I think using the old forest as sort of uh, this first step out into the, the brave new world um, for the hobbits. Um, because forests in particular have some really interesting symbolism and, and sort of symbolic history, um, particularly in, in European literature, though, though certainly, at least as far as, as I'm aware, um, like in, in Chinese literature as well, ancient Chinese literature, um, but I'm more familiar with uh, English and European because I am not a good language learner. Um, but <laughs> but forests are not sort of as... Um, okay, well, actually, let me let me start by saying this. So, so forests have kind of two ways of talking about them. One is using the term forest, uh, and the other is using the term woods. Um, and forest and woods, at least in medieval literature, are two distinct things. Um, you have like the dark and twisted wood uh, of Dante, uh, Dante's Inferno, you know, uh, midway through the journey of our lives, I found myself lost in a dark and twisted wood. That is a woods, and that evokes the sort of chaos and, and loss of, of, of sort of structure of, of, uh, of a woods, uh, of essentially of anarchy, not political anarchy, but, but anarchy in the sort of entropic sense. And then you've got forests um, and forests are interesting because they are um, structured disorder, um, particularly in medieval England. Forests were swathes of land that were cleared typically by uh, feudal lords, aristocratic lords uh, who moved peasants off to essentially rewild the land, but not in like a good green rewilding of the land, um, essentially creating a sort of fake anarchy so that they could go hunting and feel like they were sort of living in, in, in the great, you know, living in, and patrolling the great unknown. Um, and, and that kind of structured decay and purposeful sort of chaos of the forests plays a lot into um, into medieval lit. If you think about, like, for example, Robin Hood um, and uh, Sherwood Forest, um, the, the, the central conflict of Robin Hood is uh, – structured disorder, structured forceful chaos. It's, you know, uh, oh my God, I'm going to say it's John and it's not, yeah, it is. John is the usurper brother and there's Richard who's over doing evil shit. Yes. So, so King John, uh, who's sort of propped up by the, the, the sheriff of Nottingham, who, whose sort of constituency includes Sherwood Forest, um, is creating the structured disorder. He is essentially creating a forest out of England. And, and while there is an extent to which, uh, Sherwood Forest 
like presents itself as a refuge and and allows itself to be a place where uh, where you know Robin Hood and his his merry men uh, can hang out and sort of organize their uh, guerrilla campaign. Um, it is also the the sort of side of like this purposeful decay. Um, and the old forest in uh, Lord of the Rings, of course, also sort of features this, which is which is that it has this sort of inherent. Um, uh, kind of conflict between the structuring and the ordering of of uh, the world as sort of represented in some ways by the men um, and also to a sort of lesser extent the, the Noldor elves um, and the, the sort of fear uh, uh, and kind of loss and, and hysteria and delirium uh, that goes hand in hand with the slightly more modern hobbits and their perception of the forest as a woods. Um, so basically, this is all like a very long-winded way of saying, like, you know, the 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 old forest represents the sort of old world forest symbolism, meeting the kind of new world modern woods symbolism, the structured chaos versus this unstructured chaos, um, and that's all really interesting to to kind of see come to the fore so quickly in these books. Yeah, my, my mind's kind of wrapping my head around that. That's great. I, I have not heard any of those kind of stuff. I have not done enough medieval arbor um, <laughs> under, understandings of uh, how that all works. So. <laughs> Mary in the book tells us a bit more of the recent history of the old forest. The trees had grown wild and dangerous, which makes sense if a bunch of fucking elves and men are chopping you down and burning you up. <laughs> The Bucklanders erected the hedge to separate the Shire from the forest, though the trees kept trying to encroach, in which the hobbits responded by cutting down the trees and starting a big bonfire in a clearing in the woods, which would become to be known as the Bonfire Glade. Um, did we mention, by the way, that the hobbits are English, so this uh, wanton destruction of the forest is uh, pure England, mate? <laughs> so on to the chapter itself. Uh, which is probably a good time to actually start talking about it about an hour into this episode. <laughs> the four hobbits waking up in wake up early in Crick Hollow, set out to a secret passage through the hedge and into the forest. The Black Riders had already been all over the Shire at this point and harassing the halflings and their neighbors, so avoiding the road would make sense, which the road was most definitely going to be watched at this point. The journey through the woods is not very pleasant, though Mary does his best to keep up his cheer. The, the trees seem to be shepherding them one direction or another, often in conflict with the direction they want to go, east and, east and north. Outside of a few clearings in the aforementioned glade, they have little relief under the canopy of the trees. The air is thick and sticky, to the point that it makes everyone super sleepy. And they are actually being slowly moved towards Old Man Willow, who kind of has dominion, so to speak, over this area of the forest, uh, Mary and Pippin actually get sucked into the willow, which uh, Sam and Frodo frantically try to get them out. Uh, you know, they try to, you know, start a fire and Mary yells, hey, stop doing that. The tree really doesn't like it, um, which um, they kind of try to adapt part of the scene into the two towers, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically uh, Mary and Pippin just chilling uh, in a alongside a tree and the roots start sucking them in and then Treebeard has to kind of show up and yell at the tree to let them go. <laughs> um, it's in the extended edition, uh, but uh, it's not like a direct one-to-one -one adaptation, but I think it's kind of the same vibes going for it. That's good. I would not have ever picked that up. Uh, so uh, with the fire not working, Frodo, you know, just starts running around and shrieking like a chicken with its head cut off and he's calling for help. And then he <laughs> gets this response. <laughs> 
Oh, fuck. I'm not drunk enough for this. All right. Here we go. Hey, dole, married dole, ring a dong, dillo, ring a dong, hop along, fa la the willow, tom bomb, jolly tom, tom bombadillo. I have the biggest, stupidest smile on my face right now just listening <laughs> to that. that. That's wonderful <sighs> and surely much better than I will be. So uh, I thank you, Emily, for having some, <laughs> some semblance of musical oh, ability. Oh, boy. So Tom arrives, sings a song to the tree, and gives it a tongue lashing, uh, verbal <laughs> lashing, just, just to be clear, <laughs> uh, before Mary and Pippin are returned to the company, and then Tom kind of skips back to his home, and the hobbits follow, which uh, gets us to the next chapter. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. Then world behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed. Now let the song begin, let us sing together of sun, stars, moon, and mist, rain, and cloudy weather. Lay on the budding leaf, dew on the feather. Wind on the open hills, bell on the heather. Reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water. Old Tom Bombadil and the river daughter. Uh, I was doing the Pippin like chicken wing dance while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Emily was singing that. Uh, so no, that's great. Um, those are lines actually sung by Goldberry, uh, a character I don't think we've really mentioned much at all in our coverage so far. Nope. Uh, Goldberry is kind of like a river spirit or the daughter of the river. Um, the river in question here is the Withywindle. Um, and as described, she's as young and as ancient as spring, like the song of a glad water flowing down into the night at, from a bright morning in the hill. And um, I kind of digging into her history. It's kind of whatever. Um, but I did flag that she got wed to Tom with an attendant group of animals present for the ceremony. Yeah. Um, I, so Goldberry is kind of always interesting for me. Um, so, so Tom Bombadil generally, right? Like I... To put it lightly, I do not care for most of the discourse surrounding Tom Bombadil. I kind of find it boring at this point. Goldberry is fascinating to me because I don't think I've ever come across in literature, like a character in literature who has like, who is so obviously my opposite, my polar opposite. Like we just have like incredibly divergent vibes. Uh, if uh, me singing <laughs> that song and going for a drinking song when it's so obviously meant to be like a, a sort of operatic uh, kind of ambient singing beautiful uh, song uh, has not made that clear. We are we are two different, two very different people. And anyways, though, I do like Goldberry because she gives me a kind of avenue to talk about uh, one of my favorite topics, um, which is Tolkien's women. Um, and one of the things I've sort of been getting at, but, but maybe have not articulated as clearly yet as been hoping to mostly because I've only sort of worked this out in my head over the past couple of weeks, um, is that for, um, all of Tolkien's characters, but for his women in particular, there is this really interesting tension, um, between playing a sort of narrative um, and playing a sort of mythological or like folkloric role and then playing a sort of modern retrospectively or rather retrofitted uh, role as as we as sort of audience uh, members and or readers would would have expect would expect of characters. Um, and, and so what this means is like um, 
Tolkien writes all of his characters, not as fully realized people, but as characters who serve incredibly specific narrative functions. Um, Aragorn has a very clear narrative function. And when that narrative function is fulfilled, he quite literally rides off into the sunset. Um, Eowyn has a very clear uh, narrative role. And when she fulfills that role, she rides off into the sunset. Same for Frodo, same for Merry and Pippin. All of these characters are like this. And, and it is true regardless of whether or not they are men or or women characters. Um, you know, I, I obviously have to sort of stop and say that, like, I, of course, acknowledge the fact that, like, there there is a clear preference in Tolkien's writing for uh, allowing uh, sort of more action from from men characters. But um, it, it, that is that is a critique of the, the, the sort of narrative choices that Tolkien makes not of his treatment of the characters, um, because his treatment of the characters is equal uh, regardless of whether or not they are men or women. It is the narrative choices that creates that inequity. So that said, um, there is this sort of, uh, I don't want to call it recent because it certainly isn't recent. I think the the existence of Greek mythology as what it, what it is sort of proves that this is not a recent trend, but uh, only recently has it become so sort of like clearly interlinked with um, politics and, and sort of liberation politics. But there's this kind of desire to see every fictional character as a fully realized person. Um, so fictional characters are no longer 2D uh, names that exist on a piece of paper or, or on film uh, and, and go away, vanish from existence when so you close the book or turn off the film. There is this demand now for uh, fictional characters to live uh, even after the, the film has paused or, or the, the book has been shut. Um, and while it's not new, um, it is certainly now treated more as a question of uh, like feminist credentials uh, than it really ever has been before in, in, in sort of the history of, of literature and cu culture more generally. Um, so Tolkien's women are really interesting um, because of this conflict, this, this sort of retrospective conflict. Um, Goldberry, uh, Arwen, uh, Galadriel, uh, Eowyn all have very clear narrative purposes. Um, Goldberry and uh, Arwen certainly do not have a huge amount of, of, of sort of um, ink space given to them, column space given to them, but they are there to fulfill a very specific trope. Um, and what this means is that Tolkien is keenly aware of what his audience would bring with them when they read and hear about women characters um, and use that to his advantage. So you get the this sort of woman who washes her hair in the river and tends to the the the, the things that live and grow in the earth uh, and you as you being here J.R. Tolkien uh, congrats everybody uh, <laughs> would know that your audience um, is going to understand that she is this sort of ethereal figure and and is going to make a lot of uh, immediate assumptions about what she looks like what her her uh, ultimate narrative position and purpose is on the basis that she is a woman and and, and women who are described in X way uh typically are thought to or known to do certain things. Um, and, and this is sort of my like half-assed defense of uh, Goldberry and Arwen uh, and... I don't even think I'm not even going to get in the one question now, but like, you know, they, they do, they do these, these narrative purposes for a reason. And I think like a lot of the sort of anger over not knowing when Goldberry was born or not having 200 page books written about her, um, is slightly misplaced and slightly misunderstands what the purpose of uh, literature is. <laughs> I just want to jump in and say, absolutely. Um, 
I feel like current pop culture feels like if a character doesn't have a full page on Wikipedia, then it's not a fully realized character where that's not really how you realize a character. Yeah. Like, yeah, obviously you don't want to have like unnamed women in your stories or dead mothers. You know, there's obviously some gender politics associated with that. But like, I think if it just, people feel like they need facts about everyone so they can fill in a timeline about everything this person has done or has shaped their life. Um, and I think like sometimes the failing of writing women is the fact that we don't have those details, but I don't think that's necessarily the solution or always the solution. Um, it's a very one size fits all answer when I don't think it needs to be. And I think you're speaking to that really well. I, I think one of the things is for me, right? Like I think the the question, and I guess this is kind of the thing that I say over and over and over, which is like, I don't want more war stories, you know, stories of, uh, of glory and war that feature women. I want more stories that don't have glory and war in them. Um, and it's not because I think that women shouldn't be involved in war, uh, except that I think that nobody should be involved in war. Um, and, and so I want sort of narrative to reflect that. Um, and I think given that we have, well, not that we have to, but like by the fact, by virtue of the fact that like the Lord of the Rings exists, uh, and cannot be unwritten now, um, we have to assess it on those terms. Um, and so I would rather not say, I wish there were, you know, 20 different women, kind of just thrown into random places throughout the story, not with any sort of real sincere or well thought out narrative purpose. And um, I would rather say, um, I want more stories where it is uh, reasonable and understandable why a woman would serve a narrative purpose in this. Um, not because we have to treat women characters in books as people in the same way that we don't have to treat men characters in books as people, but because having those stories about women characters are going to have sort of more interesting uh, sort of narrative divergences from, from the Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. Anyways, all that, which is basically a long winded way of saying uh, more women, literary prison guards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things uh, I've kind of been laughing about in prep for this episode is, uh, uh, yeah, we just have to kind of talk about this here. Um, Oh, <laughs> uh, the question of Goldberry and Yavanna, the, the Vala Yavanna. Um, and I'm going to do like the really, really spark notes version of, of Yavanna's history, uh, mostly because I'm not super interested in the Valor generally. Whoops. Uh, light, light in universe blasphemy there. Um, so Yavanna is one of the Vala, which is like the sort of demigods who are who were responsible for the creation of, uh, well, in part creation of, of Earth. Um, and she is known for sort of being like the, the this kind of spirit, the representative of like the harvest and growth and, and uh, you know, all things that... Uh, grow and are not barren, uh, to quote Eowyn. Um, and she was the, the Vala who was responsible for planting the seeds of, of earth. So creating the sort of first harvest, she helped, not helped, she created, um, the, uh, two trees of Valinor, Telperion and Laurelin, which we've spoken about before in previous episodes. Um, and she also created the Ents, um, in response to her husband, Awula's creation of the dwarves. Um, but also really importantly, um, she had as part of the sort of servants that, that uh, you know, kind of pledged their, their allegiance to her, uh, uh, a little lad named Saruman. Uh, and he was not known as Saruman over in Valadar. He's known as Kornir, um or Kurumo. Um, but this is really interesting that, that Saruman was sort of associated with this uh, um, spirit of the earth, uh, given 
the the sort of fall from grace that he has. Um, and, and Gandalf, by contrast, was associated with Nienna, whose tears uh, were sort of representative of like the, the kind of pity and the sadness and the sorrows of the earth. And Gandalf kind of takes an opposite turn to that. Um, anyways, there's uh, a lot of chat, uh, I think quite fun, kind of cute chat on the internet uh, surrounding the question of, is Goldberry uh, Yavanna, is she a representation of Yavanna on Middle Earth? Um, I tend to go with no. Um, I think she is a representation of Edith Tolkien on Earth. Um, but I think this is actually one of these really good things that I just want to highlight here is a really fun and interesting kind of conversation and discussion that you get to have when you uh, read these books and talk about these books, because there's this sort of fascinating mythological richness to the text. Um, and, uh, you know, even though I've kind of sided with the like particularly boring take on this, which is, uh, no, she isn't a demigod in, in hiding, um, I, I do sort of encourage folks to to kind of get out there and and read a lot of these like interesting debates because they are you know they are a fun way to spend some time particularly if you're me and you like staring off into space at work. <laughs> yeah, no, I I actually don't know much about Yavanna, but like reading all the Goldberg stuff, like my mind instantly jumps to like fertility goddesses from like Greek myth and Roman yeah. myth, and I can't even name who the Greek goddess of fertility is off the top of my head. If it's not. It is. Uh, fuck, uh, Persephone and Hestia. I, think I was going to say Persephone, but I know that's like one aspect of, you know, fertility, not all aspects of fertility. Because there is a goddess of the harvest. Yeah. I believe. This is so um, embarrassing. I should know this. Oops. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't know it, but I know that they exist. But it could also, you know, like they're Greek god or the Egyptians have their own goddess of fertility. Um, I think Moon Knight taught me that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's just like even not knowing specifics, like that instantly is when I think of gold. But as soon as you say daughter of the river or, you know, a possible river spirit, um, my mind even also jumped to like spirited away, <laughs> um, which I know obviously yeah. that movie came out like 50 years after uh, Fellowship was written. But when I think of like river spirits, it's like I kind of imagine them like they're depicted in that film for whatever reason. Yeah. Obviously, she's not a giant hunk of mud that comes in and has bicycles <laughs> stuck in her. Although that would be an interesting visual adaptation of Goldberry. <laughs> There's nothing to say she isn't. Well, there is, but there isn't. <laughs> um, uh, so Now that yeah, you've said ahead. that, though, um, I have just got it into my head, and I can't believe I didn't get there earlier, uh, but in uh, in Dante's Purgatorio, uh, there is a river spirit. Well, she's not a river spirit. She's a person who guards the river. Um, I think her name is Matilda, um, but she uh, sort of... Uh, stewards or guards the rivers Lethe and you know um, and helps to bring um, sort of uh, penitents uh, who are working their way through through purgatory through the Lethe I believe which cleanses them of their sins and then the you know which reminds them of all the goodness they did on earth um, and Goldberry sort of has has that kind of similar uh, position in a way oh, that, no that's right on uh, which I guess we can have a little fun now and talk about if they did uh, adapt Goldberry. Uh, who would you like to see uh, play her? Uh, and you can, you know, choose to do it in 2002 or 2022. Um, I don't expect you to have a full catalog of actors who were really rocking it when you were three years old. So, uh, whatever you feel, um, maybe I should just start because I think you like my first choice. Yes, um, go for it. Uh, I really like uh, Laura Dern for this yes. role. Uh, and this literally could be 2002 Laura Dern or 2022 Laura Dern. I, I actually kind of like 2022 Laura Dern better a little bit. Um, I feel like even though Goldberry is supposed to have some kind of like forever youth to her because she is like 
whatever, a spirit of the spring or as ancient as spring. I don't know how to describe it, but <laughs> I, just, I don't know. It just, I really like Laura Dern. It's like the David Lynch meme for your consideration, Laura Dern. <laughs> uh, it's just like, and I think uh, there is a Lord of the Rings like card game based on the movies or, uh, and uh, like whatever actor or person they had posed for the portrait of that version of Goldberry reminds me a little bit of Laura Dern. It was kind of in the various articles and wikis I was doing for research for this episode. But uh, I don't know. She just, I look at her and it's just like, yeah, yeah, that, that looks like Laura Dern to me. Yeah, that is so, I think that is maybe the best casting choice of all time. That is, yeah, I want like Jurassic Park, Laura Dern in that. Um, I'm just, I'm just so fucking tickled. I think that's the most galaxy brain answer to this question ever. I like need it in my life. I'll see if I can get Laura on the phone and see if we can shoot some scenes for that. Um, I had some other ones, but I feel like Laura Dern's so good and so well received by my podcast co-host that we can just move on to uh, the big fucking meat of this episode, I guess. Oh, here we go. I'll, I'll do this one. Right. This is going to be bad. Yeah, this. Hey, come Mary doll, dairy doll, my darling. Like goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along under hill, shining in the sunlight. Waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter. Slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing. Comes hopping home again, can you hear him singing? Hey, come Mary doll, dairy doll, and Mario. Goldberry, Goldberry, Mary Yelly Berry-o. <laughs> Poor old willow man, you tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now, evening will follow day. Tom's going home again, water lilies bringing. Hey, come dairy doll, can you hear me singing? Yes, I love it. Oh my God, this was so good. <laughs> and I'm almost like wishing that there were like six more verses so we wouldn't have to get into fucking Tom Bombadil. Um, but here we go. Um, so this is like, I mean, this is, I, I feel like I've said this a million and one times. I think this is most world's most kind of boring and overplayed discourse, but, uh, unfortunately is a, as necessary part of Lord of the Rings book discourse as the, the story itself at this point. So we can't elide it, but, um, I've been working on this take for a really long time, um, because I knew it was coming at some point and I was like, I have to have something to say that isn't just who care. Um, but I will start by saying who care. And secondly, um, I think that Tom Bombadil, uh, has a really important function that cannot possibly be adapted to film properly. Um, and I think the reason for that is that Tom Bombadil is the author's self-insert. Um, and I say the author here and not Tolkien, um, because he's absolutely not Tolkien's self-insert. Um, Tolkien kind of inserts himself through like uh, three or four different characters that we kind of meet along the way. Um, but none of them are really Tom Bombadil in, in terms of personality. Um, Tom Bombadil rather stands for the function of the author, which is like to say he's kind of a pointed reminder that this is a story um, and that this does not operate under the same rules of reality as as we as the readers operate under. Um, and because that's true, there, there are there are therefore things that necessarily exist beyond the world of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and you don't need that in a film. Um, and you don't need that in a film because the camera does that for you. Um, one of the things that I think kind of illustrates this really well is um, the, the sort of 
um, omniscience and omnipresence of the the camera, the shots, the beautiful sweeping shots, like uh, when we see or think after the fall for the first time, um, or when we're kind of soaring high above the Great River in in uh, uh, fellowship, um, or of course when we're sweeping over Helm's Deep, um, that says to us as the audience that we are not in this scene. We are watching the scene, but we are not in it. We're not at eye level. We are not participants in this scene. Um, and that functionally is is also what Tom Bombadil is meant to do. Um, and because that's there, because that's true, um, you couldn't really get Tom Bombadil on, t- on TV, on film, without <laughs> having it land badly, really, just badly. Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And like even without a well-formed take like Emily has there, I just think that it just wouldn't work with like the tone or the build of suspense in the Fellowship film specifically. Um, because as soon as the Black Riders hit the Shire as Frodo and Sam set out, um, it, is, it is a chase scene. It is the fugitive. It is, uh, you know, Javert and, and uh, <laughs> Valjean. Um, it, it does not have time or the energy for let's go do this kind of side quest thing on its way. Um, And I think there is a valid point to Tom's inclusion in the books. I think you really hit on it well. Um, Something that almost exists outside of the scope and the concerns of the actual thing that's happening. Uh, But I just don't think it would abs, it would be so tonally dissonant um, from everything that they're building up to both in that like first half of fellowship, but also just the films as a whole thing that it, it would just, it would not make sense and would be like the biggest, why is this here um, that I can think of in cinema? I had an errand there gathering water lilies, green leaves and lilies white to please my pretty lady. The last ere the year's end to keep them from the winter, to flower by her pretty feet till the snows are melted. Each year at summer's end I go to find them for her, in a wide pool, deep and clear, far down the withy windle. There they open first in spring, and there they linger latest. By that pool long ago I found the river daughter, fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating, and that proved well for you, for now I shall no longer go down deep again along the forest water, not while the year is old. Nor shall I be passing old man Willow's house this side of springtime, not till the merry spring, when the river daughter dances down the withy path to bathe in the water. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> so also while in the house of Tom Bombadil, the boys get a nice little nap time in, and the boys generally have some bad dreams. Huh. Uh, Frodo, I don't know if I would call it a bad dream per se, but has a vision or something of Gandalf fighting atop Orthanc and then hopping on the eagle, something we see more explicitly when Gandalf flashes back for us in the film itself. Um, and then he also seems to have a vision of the Black Riders, like not like on the doorstep of Tom Bombadil, but like in the general vicinity, um, you know, kind of like his ring telescope vision that you sometimes see in the <laughs> films. Like he knows that there's things that are giving chase not far off in the distance. Uh, Mary and Pippin also sleep quite terribly, but Slam, Sam, Sam sleeps well. <laughs> Poor Sam, deemed too dumb to dream bad dreams. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's kind of a longer running theme uh, of the question of dreams and reality and, and uh, 
to put on my like French philosopher voice, uh, what is truth? Um, and that that's sort of a big part of, of the Lord of the Rings, and and certainly will become a, a much bigger theme in the Two Towers and in Return of the King. Um, and of course, in the Silmarillion, you've got like Olmo, uh, uh, one of the Valar, uh, and that's U L M O, not E L M O. E L M O, Elmo was one of the first elves. Olmo is a, is a Valar, um, but he sends dreams to the high elves, uh, Turgon and Finrod, um, and and that's kind of like a very important sort of prophetic moment in the Silmarillion. But then, of course, there's uh, Faramir and Boromir's dream in Lord of the Rings, and this question of like what is real, um, and uh, that I think really is all that needs to be said here today on this because Frodo's dream we later learn as as true but the, you know there, there's some sort of interesting elements of like divine intervention well potentially pseudo divine intervention that come into it later that we'll we'll chat about when uh, Manu gets to 100 Patreons thank you thank you <laughs> uh, and I did want to highlight a line from Tom Bombadil uh, just because you will here you will recognize the words when he describes the pillaging or the destruction of the giant forest that once connected Old Forest and the Fangorn, and I'm sure even the more recent incursions by the Hobbit, he mentions that, you know, the enemies come and they are gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, destroyers and usurpers, which, you know, you should know is lines given to Treebeard in the Two Towers when he describes the orcs and what they've been doing to Fangorn uh, pretty recently, you know, after Saruman has kind of betrayed uh, the elves and men of the world. But um, part of the reason we're kind of doing this episode now is it kind of goes hand in hand really well with some of the Fangorn stuff um, because there is a lot of the natural world as we know it in these chapters specifically and even the ones we'll talk about later in Fellowship like the Great River. So the chapter after the House of Tom Bombadil is The Fog on the Barrow Downs. And uh, this chapter is roughly, the Barrow Downs are what, like mounds that have kind of become tombs for old kings or something, at least an older generation of folk. Um, and they're somewhat haunted. And like a white is something that I didn't really know as a term until I read A Song of Ice and Fire because the reanimated zombies by the White Walkers or the others are referred to whites there. Uh, in this, I kind of picture them as kind of like skeletons, like Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. But I honestly don't even really know what a white is specifically as used here. Yeah. So um, this is actually one of these kind of points where that. So so the term white uh, just referred to a spirit, uh, the undead generally, um, and it didn't necessarily need to be a zombie or something inherently corporeal. And but then Tolkien uses it here to refer to, like you say, basically kind of skeletons or people interpreted as like skeletons or zombies. Um, and from there on out, uh, white in fantasy generally uh, came to mean pretty exclusively uh, the corporeal uh, zombified undead. Um, but yeah, that that's certainly a, a sort of <laughs> Tolkien innovation there. Um, and I am kind of choosing a bit of like uh, a careful silence here um, on this chapter because um, when we did our fellowship wrap up episode, this is the this is this is the chapter from from whence I pulled my favorite quote um, from the books. Um, I think this is some of the most masterful sort of incorporation of like history, uh, the sort of ambient history of Lord of the Rings and into the narrative, um, and. Uh, it is, of course, the sort of first time we begin to see in, in truth the legacy of the sons of Numenor and the, the, nor 
Northern Kingdom and uh, its excesses and 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 collapse, um, we really start to see quite seriously here on on the Barrow Downs. Um, but I'm going to self censor for the most cheap ass reason, and trust you me that I'm slightly embittered by it because um, a lot of this stuff is going to be relevant for the Rings of Power, um, and so I don't want to hit on it all here because we'll have to come back to it anyways for the Rings of Power briefer episodes. So uh, put a pin in that and we'll we'll get there, folks. Yeah. And of course, we have more songs that we're about to dive into here in a moment. <laughs> and I think this chapter is very interesting because as we've spent so much time talking about songs, um, songs serve several purposes in this specific chapter. Uh, there's a Barrow White song, which they use to charm the hobbits and get them to fall under their spell, which afflicts all of them except Frodo. Um, but then there's also songs related to uh, Frodo calling for aid, uh, which he does because Tom Pombadil basically gave him a cheat code. as like, here, use this code and I will come and save you if I can. Um, and you know, then there's the song that Tom Bombadil uses to answer. So we're hearing song, not just as storytelling and history, as we've talked about very much at length on this podcast, but also, um, as a way to influence, persuade, coerce, and then also to call for aid and then to answer said aid. So without further ado, we'll first start with the Barrow White song, which they sing to bring in the hobbits. Cold be hand and hard and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and still on gold here let me lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Yes! Oh my god, that was fucking brilliant. I'm so hyped. Oh, okay, that's my first Barrow White and probably my last Barrow White impression yes. that will ever be recorded. Um, I don't know how they do it without musculature and tongues and all that stuff. I assume this guy, the, it's like that Simpsons joke is like they hit the same, you know, he played his skeleton like a xylophone and it emanated the same note from the same rib. Anyways, um, so that transitions into uh, the other part. Uh, do you want to be Frodo? Oh boy, what a question. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the Frodo L. Um, <laughs> oh, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, by water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. Hey, that's the brilliant one. I love that one. I think that one is just so, like, it, it kind of gets everything I like about the simplicity of the early fellowship story, which is like, yeah, bright blue his jacket is. You're so right. <laughs> Um, so but, true bestie yeah ah, ah, ah. oh my god all right this is targeting the zoomer audience now uh come to us youths um yeah so th so this is one of these th this sort of call and response for aid through the medium of song is actually like a really common um and and high profile uh trope in in tolkien's legendarium uh my man really loved this stuff um you've got uh in the silmarillion one of my sort of 
uh, favorite of examples of it is uh, when Maedhras, uh son of Feanor, was captured by Sauron, well, Morgoth and Sauron, and, and held in a volcano by his wrist. Uh, Fingon, uh, his half-cousin, uh comes to find him in, in the volcano and to find him when it's too dark and, and too impossible to sort of navigate, he gets out his his harp uh, and and sings a song uh, and Maedhras answers the, the, the next verse in kind. Uh, there's also that sort of uh, identical interaction between Baron and Luthien when uh, Luthien is saving Baron's dumb ass. Um, and then in uh, in Return of the King, uh, or rather Two Towers, Return of the King, uh, what is in, in the movie? I can't remember. No, it's definitely Return of the King in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, in uh, in uh, uh, Ungle, uh when in She Labs Lair, when Sam can't find Frodo, he sings Elbereth Gilthoniel uh, as his sort of way of, of finding Frodo. Um, and so this is just one of these really brilliant and, and fun kind of uh, Tolkien TM tropes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And now we move on. <laughs> to some more songs, because of course Tom solves problems by singing. Um, I'll do the exorcism song, uh, and then I'll let Emily take care of the reviving the hobbits and calling the horses and stuff. So, Yeehaw. get out, you old white, vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. Come never here again, leave your barrow empty, lost and forgotten be. Darker than the darkness, where the gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. I, I did it more of a slam poetry that time because I couldn't find a tune. <laughs> yeah, no good, thank you, because now I, I get the slam poetry permission. <laughs> wake now, my merry lads, wake and hear me calling. Warm now, be heart and limb, the cold stone is fallen. Dark door is standing wide, dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open. And surprisingly similar to how uh, Tom calls the the ponies back, which is, hey, now, come hoy now, whither do you wander? Up, down, near, far, here, there, or yonder? Sharp ears, wise nose, swish tail, and bumpkin. White socks, my little lad, and old fatty lumpkin. Yeah, which I guess we haven't mentioned fatty lumpkin (laughs) at all yet. (laughs) It's a weird slur for Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Very integral character. I would also fan cast Laura Dern as Fatty Lumpkin, <laughs> which is Tom's horse, right? I'm not getting that wrong. Yeah, yeah. Or is, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. So I think now we are going to fast forward quite a bit, basically past Bree, past the flight to the Ford, past Rivendell, past Moria. And the last couple chapters we're going to talk about are in Lothlorien and uh, the Great River which we obviously saw that in the films, but there's kind of like big chunks of it uh, that were not adapted uh, for the theatrical edition at the very least. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is the Miromir, um, also called Kaledzaram, which is a pool of water on the eastward side of the Misty Mountains. It is something that, um, what's it called, Gimli talked about like long before they entered Moria. And uh, what happens is, you know, they leave Moria and Gandalf's obviously just fallen. So everyone's kind of sad. But Gimli's like, no, we really need to stop at this rest stop because there's a really cool tourist attraction here. (laughs) Um, He brings Frodo along um, and then he, what's it called? Uh, 
Sam kind of tags along as well because Sam does that whether or not he's beckoned to or not. <laughs> um, and uh, Gimli leads them to this water, this pool, and they look into the water. And I'm going to read this line from it. First, they could see nothing. Then slowly they saw the forms of the encircling mountains mirrored in a profound blue, and the peaks were like plumes of white flame above them. Beyond there was a space of sky. There, like jewels sunk in the deep shone glinting stars, though sunlight was the, in the sky above. Um, I can't remember exactly why I flagged it, other than it's obviously some pretty banger-ass prose. <laughs> um, but I think there was something about the plumes of white flame that just had me thinking Gandalf for some mm. reason. Um, whether it's because he's the servant of the secret fire or that he's about to become Gandalf the White, I felt there was something very evocative in the, that phrasing of plumes of white flame above them. Because as we know, he will fight the Balrog to the top of... Um, what's it called? The Misty Mountains, even though that would not be for several days after uh, Gimli and Frodo had moved on past the Mirror Mirror. Yeah. Tolkien is so, I mean, I guess necessarily because he writes about mountains so fucking much, but he's always got these really good uh, descriptors for, uh, for mountains. Um, all the times he re like refers to them as teeth uh, definitely sets something horrified, like body horror style off inside me. Um, but yeah, no, 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 this is a good one. Um, and I, and I think like mirror mirror is also, um, a, a kind of really good point, uh, for bringing back a lot of the sort of Gandalf baptismal stuff, um, that we got into in the first episode of, of two towers coverage. Um, and, uh, you know, um, there is the watcher in the water at the entrance of Moria <clears throat> and then mirror mirror at the, the exit of it. Um, and this kind of is, maybe a reach here um but there, there's the sort of birth and and redeath element to baptism um and baptism obviously includes water um and so to have these two these two pools of water um both at the sort of birth of uh of moria and like of the fellowship and sort of the fellowship kind of really coming into itself and then uh the the sort of start of the death of um uh uh hang on sorry said that wrong yeah. death is mm -hmm. the watcher in the water um because gandalf is about to go to his death um, and then uh, Mirror Mirror is his birth, uh, where he comes out as as Gandalf the White. Uh, congrats to Gandalf is coming out, um, and uh, that is sort of that like um, baptismal sort of birth and redeath, um, death and rebirth. I don't know why I can't get that in the right order, um, but yeah. But the the, the sort of uh, also an extension of the sort of womb and tomb metaphor that comes up a lot of the time when when Tolkien is dealing with waters and caves. You, you you've got that element, um, and then also sort of uh, as uh, I, I I pulled the Diana Wynne Jones uh, quote and a um, couple episodes ago in Fellowship uh, the, the the sort of. Uh, notion that whenever Tolkien shows water and talks about water, you really need to be paying attention to what's going on because water is, is never just water. Um, and that is, of course, necessary here. But then there's also the element of which water is just water here. And this is beautiful water. And Gimli and the lads take some time out of this incredibly important quest to stop and literally smell the roses to appreciate the world around them and and, and both like in its sort of natural and constructed forms. And, and I think that is also uh, just a really lovely kind of moment in these books. Yeah. For, I don't know why I never flagged the obvious juxtaposition to um, the water on the other side with the watcher in the water, because um, they're described as almost complete opposites. Um, you know, uh, first of all, I don't think the water on the west side of Moria was like supposed to be there or completely natural. It was a result of damming or flooding or whatever was going on. Um, but they were kind of like, oh, I don't remember this here. Whereas 
the other side, the mirror mirror is what Durin, I think like literally yeah. saw and like led him to uh, build his kingdom there. I might have that wrong. I'm no, no, leaning totally on you right. for that. Yeah. And then w- when they describe the pool that the watcher in the water is in, they mention that it has like no reflection. They can't see into it. Whereas here on the other end, it is like a perfect mirror um, of what they would see, obviously giving its name. And one thought I had, um, I don't really know the chronology of this, but when you said mirror, mirror for the first time, I'm like, is that supposed to sound like mirror, mirror? <laughs> um, because I don't know, there is an aspect of reflection in what Durin saw or what even Frodo and Sam see now. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly if that's Sleeping Beauty or Snow White. Um, like I am not that well versed in kind of the older Disney canon. Um, but obviously those are borrowing from older fairy legends that before they were consumed by capitalism. Uh, I, I don't know if that was meant to be kind of maybe a play on it or not, but I just kind of heard it when I heard you said it for the first time, cause I'd only read the word up until now. Mm. Um, but like the yeah. sound of it being mirror, mirror kind of yells something at me these days or at this moment. Yeah. No. And I think it's also interesting to, cause mirror and, uh, in old, well in English generally, but also old English specifically does mean a lake. And, and so you are right to like, to kind of haul that up because, um, we get this place name, um, not using Cinder and Moria and not using the, the sort of, uh, Dwaro Lake Casa Doom. Um, you know, we don't get a sort of, uh, a common tongue, uh, name for, for, for Moria. Um, but we do get a common tongue name for this, which means that Tolkien was very, uh, conscientiously choosing the name here, uh, and really wanting to highlight, uh, what the name meant, uh, because he uncovered it in, in, in English for us as the reader. So I think that that's certainly a really good call. Yeah. Thank you. Also in this chapter, we have a little more focus on Ethelus or Kingsfoil as well as Mithril. Uh, with uh, with Ethelus, as we kind of discussed in our Flight to the Ford episode, it really only matters for that one scene uh, where they're trying to make sure Frodo's on the men before heading over to, uh, you know, Rivendell. But all through the books, uh, the presence of Ethelus will be fairly significant because um, they, they use it to kind of treat Sam's wound. He got like a you know, kind of a gash on his head in Moria that isn't really shown in the films. Uh, and they use Ethelus to treat it. Um, and then when we get to the Houses of Healing and a lot of stuff late in Return of the King, we're going to be talking quite a bit about Ethelus, at least on the book side of things. So mm. um, it gets way more play in the books than it does in its one scene in the film. And then the whole scene of, you know, Frodo being stabbed um, and then them like, oh, he has a mithril shirt on. All of this takes place after the fact. Um, you know, everything in Moria is such, so hellish and frantic that, you know, Frodo gets stabbed by an orc chieftain. Um, Sam gets his little boo-boo, but they're like <laughs> rushing off. The Balrog comes. Um, then, you know, Gandalf falls. They're rushing out of Moria. They want to make sure they get out of the mountains before, uh, you know, the orcs start flooding the nighttime. And Aragorn just completely lost track because, you know, he's a shitty person and bad leader. <laughs> um, no, I'm not going to say that, but I'm sure Emily <laughs> smiled really big at that. But like he like in the hecticness, he like lost sight that Frodo and Sam had wounds that needed to be treated. So that whole thing about them discovering that uh, Frodo had a mithril shirt all happens here. And it's actually something that Frodo kind of tried to hide. Like he didn't want other people to know it was Mithril. Whereas in the films, it's like, oh, damn, this dude has Mithril. Afraid of Frodo's not shy of it. And then everyone's like, damn, that's awesome. Way to go, dude. <laughs> um, but there's just a little more hesitation for Frodo to admit his invincibility, his plot armor, as you like to call it. So. <laughs> 
I, I'm done. So anything you want to add? Um, yeah, no, I, I think one of the things um, I was thinking about quite recently, no, not recently, it was a couple months ago, I've lost track of uh, time and how time works. Um, but in one of Tolkien's letters that's uh, published and appropriately Tolkien's letters, um, he talks about how... Um, you know, he gets he gets letters from fans and they're always asking him for different elements of the legendarium. And he's like, you know, the biologists always want to hear more about uh, the plant life of, of Middle Earth and the historians always want to hear more of the history. And uh, the tailors always want to hear more about the clothing uh, and and, you know, how he's sort of responding to um, something he's quite tickled by, which is that um, there are lots of things he sort of includes because he is being thoughtful about world building and because he wants to sort of expand uh, how how lively the world feels, but that he wasn't necessarily expecting people to pick up on it and to for them to have such like a, a, a vibrant interest in all of these things. And I think um, Athelas and, and Mithril are these two perfect examples of these because in, in a lot of ways they become kind of stalwarts of the the fantasy genre in, in the, the uh, intervening years between the publication of the books and now. Um, and um, I'm sure Tolkien wasn't expecting that they would become as legendary and as iconic as they have become, but just as sort of part of his like thoughtfulness and, and his sort of detail-oriented uh, writing style, uh, you really do get this sort of vibrancy to, to the world around it just through these tiny, almost throwaway details. So moving on a bit, uh, we didn't talk, or we talked a, lo- a little bit about Nimrodel when we got to Lothlorien. It is a major river going through uh, the forest. Um, and Legolas sings a song about it, which, I don't know, do we want to sing the song or any oh, part of it? God help me. Um, it, it is fucking long. <laughs> um, here, I'll, I'll just do the first couple bars, or I'll just read it to you, but um, it is about the namesake of the river. It's not about the river itself, um, but it goes, or it starts at least an elven made. There was of old a shining star by day. Her mantle white was helmed with gold, her shoes of silver gray. A star was bound upon her brows. A light was on her hair as sun upon the golden boughs in Lorien the fair. Her hair was long. Her limbs were white and fair. She was and free. And in the wind, she went as light as leaf of linden tree. Besides the falls of Nimrodel, by water cool and clear, her voice is falling silver fell into the shining pool. I read that wrong at some point, so I'm going to just choose that as a place to stop. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. Um, I, I think kind of uh, ironically, given the the sort of groaning context in which we prepared for that bit, um, this is a, a, another sort of nice little moment of, of Tolkien being really thoughtful about the the sort of style and um, uh, 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 the sort of purpose of the words that he's writing, um, which is, you know, we're bitching and moaning about having to do it um, here. But, but if you are reading this out to the book, out to a, a group of people, um, the song gives you a chance to sort of pass it off uh, and and not have to read for a second. And so it's giving you as the narrator a break. Or even if you're just reading it to yourself, you don't really need to pay attention to every single detail that's recounted in, in the song. Um, you can even skip over the vast majority of the song um, and not really have your understanding of the plot changed in a substantial way. Um so it's kind of like an optional level in a way. But if you do listen to it and or if you do read it, you get this uh, huge amount of sort of background texture. Um, 
that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and, and so it's this sort of like a little reward, little treat uh, for for kind of paying close attention. And and that reward is having just this like massively more uh, um, significant and, and sort of um, tangible narrative universe. Yeah, no, I, I will kind of freely admit that I kind of skipped the songs when I first yeah. read these 20 <laughs> years ago. Um, and uh, to be honest, when I first started reading The Song of Ice and Fire, I also was skipping songs. Um, and one thing that really kind of was a light bulb for me or a turning point was like, yeah, there was obviously a lot of history in Georgia's songs or whatever, but like stuff like The Reigns of Castamere, the Lannister song, like that was like super plot relevant. Um, and when I like because I finished the five books that were available and then I instantly just reread them. And that second time I paid attention to the song, I was like, oh, like the Red Wedding is here. It is in the song. It tells you it's coming. Um, and I'm not saying that that makes the songs in George's books better. Or like I'm not making any kind of qualitative comparison, but um, I feel like I needed A Song of Ice and Fire to be like, no, these songs kind of matter. It's not just extra content or, you know, DVD extras. Um, and you know, a lot of the songs you could kind of skip in Lord of the Rings if you're just interested in what happens next to Frodo and Aragorn, um, and less concerned with the broader world. Um, but I think one of the fun parts of rereading the books, prepping for this pod, or even just recently with a renewed, uh, joy with the books, um, was going back because the songs were something I had skipped. So now like I was like eagerly chewing them up because there was world building and history in there that mm. previously wasn't of interest to me, but now is like, yes, give me more. I want all of this. I want to, I want more songs, damn it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's all I got on that one. And I guess we also have the great river chapter in here, which was condensed to essentially a couple long shots and landscape shots. Um, I actually don't remember what happened in this book chapter. I did not get to it. Um, yeah. Great. Thanks for unlocking this episode, Patreon. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, so I think like the really important bit of the Great River uh, to me, the chapter's nice, lots of good descriptions. The important bit, though, is Sam freaking out about the water. Um, and, and this is the chapter where we learn that Sam hates the water and is absolutely fucking not furious because Sam doesn't really get angry, but like really sort of feeling like put upon uh, for having to get in a boat um, because he has this sort of deep and abiding fear of the water and genuinely doesn't think that anything good or civilized should be getting into boats on the water, um, which is, of course, uh, like a really important build up for when he dives into the water to swim after Frodo, even though he's terrified of the water and can't swim. Oh, that's very good. Uh, it could have potentially added context for the film, uh, but I also, I think it pretty much stands alone as it is. Uh, so yeah, we're kind of at the end of our outline. I did have a random, did you want to fan cast Glorfindel? And I couldn't tell if the, what you wrote underneath is who you actually want as Glorfindel, but I think it's actually kind of brilliant. So I kind of want you to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so I have this thing, right. So, so the actress Anya Taylor-Joy, right. I don't mind her. I think she's fine. Um, I think she was really good in, in uh, Robert Eggers' The Vich, um, which is a great movie about, uh, what I assume is 21st century Boston. Um, and, um, I've liked her in a couple other films that she's been in. I hated her, Emma, but that's okay. That's not her fault. Um, but she always gets fan cast as things. Um, and I'm like, that's fine. Like she probably is like the ideal sort of like waif. Uh, and it's been quite a while since we've had that like waif in that kind of way. She's very weird looking, but like very beautiful at the same time. And we don't often get that. Um, but she's been fan cast for fucking everything. And now it's a bit of a meme because like every time there's like a blonde, they're like, oh, cast Anya Taylor-Joy. But I sincerely here mean that 
Anya Taylor-Joy should play Glorfindel because I'm obsessed with the idea of the elves as these like eldritch abominations. Um, and I think they should look like slightly fucked up and slightly like they could kill you and slightly like not of this world. They shouldn't be like, you know, no, no shade on uh, Liv Tyler for being the most beautiful person in the world, but I don't think they should be that beautiful. <laughs> I think they should be beautiful, but also terrifying. Um, and I think Anya Taylor-Joy has that vibe correctly. And I also think it'd be dead funny to take all of the men elves that uh, annoying Nazi freaks on the internet love and cast them all as women and be like, where does it say? Where does it say that this isn't the case? Where does it say that elvish men don't look like this? Um, because it would be fun. And um, so, yeah, I, I memed myself into sincerely thinking that Anya Taylor-Joy should play Glorfindel. This is where we're at now. Yeah, no, I, I fully endorse this. I actually had Anya listed among some other actors when we were going to talk about Goldberry. And I, it wasn't, and I like put in the notes to Emily, I was like, I really hate this because I feel like there's like, five actors that people cast in everything. It's like her and Tom Holland and yep. uh, Timothy Chalamet. Like any <laughs> fan casting for anything, it's like those three people. If you need an older person, it's Josh Brolin. I, I don't know why we settled on these like five actors. And like, I think they're all fairly brilliant in what they do, but it's just like, there's so many great actors out there. I don't, these people don't necessarily need more roles or more IP or franchises to be in. Uh, but I, I think, because like I don't view the elves in terms because we've talked about gender a lot on this as being kind of a very colonial concept, as at least as practiced and depicted now in like late capitalism and the Anglosphere and all that. Um, but I can see the elves not existing in the same gender binary or the, our same conceptions about masculinity and femininity, um, both because they are, actually are a different type of being, but also just kind of as descriptive um, or described, sorry, descriptive with that. Word. <laughs> uh, so like, I actually think like it's totally, and I don't even think of it as gender bending is like, oh, Glorfindel's a woman in this. It's just Glorfindel is Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, not necessarily, and I, I don't know if I want to completely strip it of all gender context, but it's like, I wouldn't even like make a thing of it being a woman being cast as Glorfindel. It's just like, yeah, that's just Glorfindel. Yeah. Um, that's just what they're like now. Yeah. There's like very little about Glorfindel, at least from my very amateurish reading of the Lord of the Rings. That's like part of a gender performance that it would really matter if it's a man or a woman. Um, uh, like yes. for that matter too uh, yeah oh big time um, and there are a lot of interesting sort of parallels and anti-parallels uh, in verses uh, between Legolas and Glorfindel um, and at some point um, if uh, I win the lottery and can commission uh, an anime studio to do the Silmarillion properly um, as a film or TV series, probably a TV series, uh, we'll revive the pod podcast so we can talk about uh, my takes on Glorfindel uh, and gender uh, and it's it, th that topic's relationship to uh, good old Ecthelion of the Fountain. And I swear to God, I'm not making all of these words up, but uh, <laughs> in the future, <laughs> we will get there. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so as you heard, we just announced if we hit a million patrons, uh, Emily will direct an anime about Glorfindel and the Silmarillion. So, uh, you know, that's that's our third stretch goal. We can get 100. And once we get 100, we're jumping right to a million. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter. 
You can support this podcast by subscribing to Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and other projects I'm working on, which Nuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you'll find me on Twitter using my Legolas and Glorfindel dolls to go now Kith. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, Tom's country ends here. He will not pass the borders. Tom has his house to mind and Goldberry is waiting. (laughs) That should rhyme. (laughs) Holy shit. God, this is going to be such an unhinged episode. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Okay. Oh, boy. Old Tom Bombadil is American. I'm going to start over. <laughs> I have no idea what the meter is supposed to be on. No, any of this fuck shit. knows. <laughs>